Father, you have blessed us exorbitantly as we consider the lives which we have here in America today. And even though we do face a world where it seems that the clouds are darkening and conditions are, are turning to the worst relative to Christianity, particularly even in this country, which is supposed to be the land of the free and the home of the brave, and yet, Father, it seems that more and more uh, darkness is pervading our land. But in spite of all these things, Lord, we are greatly blessed. As we consider the course of history for thousands of years, we have to recognize that of all the people who live, we are amongst the very teeny minority who have experienced blessings of comfort and joy and peace in this life uh, more than the vast majority. And on top of this, Father, to know you, whom to know is life eternal, and to have the opportunity to freely, at least at this point in time, study the Word of God and to share in fellowship together. Now, Lord, guide us in our study today. We have to always acknowledge that we are merely students of the Word. You are our teacher. And so we pray that you will guide us in our thinking today and our understanding, and then ultimately in our application of your Word. In Christ's name, amen. Genesis chapter 24, verse 15. I'd like to begin reading there. We are in a chapter which covers one of the most, I, I don't know, one of the most thrilling uh, little accounts that we read about in, in the Old Testament. Particularly is it so explicit in how God answers prayer and uh, does so dramatically because of His great compassion for His people. Reading from verse 15 to 21 to begin with. And it came about before he had finished speaking that behold, Rebekah, who was born of Bethuel, son of Milcah, wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, came out with her jar on her shoulder. And the girl was very beautiful, a virgin, and no man had had relations with her. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, let me drink a little water from your jar. And she said, Drink, my lord. And, he, and she quickly lowered her jar to her hand and gave him a drink. Now when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran back to the well to draw, and she drew for all his camels. Meanwhile, the man was gazing at her in silence to know whether the Lord had made his journey successful or not. We began last week looking at this particular <laughs> chapter, and uh, we realized, of course, this is the story where Abraham has sent his servant back to where his brother's family was living, up in Paden Aram, which would be in the northern part of Mesopotamia probably, that is, that's where Paden Aram was, and we assume that's where he went. And that this man has gone with the purpose of finding a wife for Isaac from amongst the family of Abraham. Abraham didn't want his son to marry a Canaanite. He didn't want his son to uh, go to Mesopotamia himself. He wanted the servant to bring back a wife from the family for Isaac. Now, the purpose was, as we've already noted, because he wanted someone of like mind spiritually. He couldn't know for sure, of course, that Nahor's family uh, walked with God as Abraham did. 
From this passage, we understand that they acknowledged who Yahweh was, and uh, we won't get to the, the verse this week, but further on down, it implies that they understood who God was, and they recognized that as Laban and Rebekah, and they acknowledged his authority. We know from later occurrences when Jacob was visiting with his uncle and, of course, married uh, his cousins, should have been cousin, but ended up to be cousins, that Laban was a possessor of household idols, the teraphim, or teraphim as they're called. And uh, so, you know, a little bit of a syncretism there probably, a, a basic acknowledgement of Yahweh, but kind of hedging his bets, it seems like, with uh, typical household type uh, gods or good luck charms or whatever you might want to call them, which is very characteristic down through history. And uh, you'll find that the tradition even carries over today. And, and there are many people even in America who have little symbols and things around their house which are in effect kind of like good luck charms, often with spiritual overtones to them. And so it was with uh, this man uh, Laban. But here we find that uh, this man, uh, the servant, has traveled for probably the better part of a month. He has now arrived at the city of Nahor and uh, he has made this prayer. He's asked the Lord that in order for him to find the right lady, that the, he came to the well at the evening time when the ladies all came to the well to get water for the evening meal and the wash-up and everything that would last over until the morning, that the lady who would be the choice for Isaac would be one who would be willing to give him a drink and then of her own accord she would offer to water also the camels. Now we have to assume this, that this was not something that would just normally be done. We talk a lot about Near Eastern hospitality and we'll make some references to that as we go through here again today. But we dare not carry that to the extreme. For one thing we have to remember this is not a Bedouin village, this is a city. And conditions were not the same. Remember in Sodom, when uh, <clears throat> the two angels came to speak to uh, Lot, that Lot found them in the city square, and he insisted that they come and stay with him. Now, Lot was an ex-Bedouin, and so this hospitality still was within him, but there is no implication that, that others would have invited these two strangers into their house, except for, of course, the purposes for which they were later, later the men of Sodom tried to subject them. Uh, so we have to realize that uh, probably what he asked of the Lord was unusual. You know, we wouldn't go out uh, probably and say, now Lord, uh, the, the lady we're looking for will probably <clears throat> have her hair parted on the right side and she'll wear a green dress and you know, we could ask some things like that, but what would be so unusual about that, you know? There might be many like that. So obviously we have to assume that this was something probably that would not normally take place. What's so important and fascinating about this passage is you'll notice that before this man even completes his prayer, the answer is on the way. Now, of that, of course, reminds you, I'm sure, as it did of me, did me, of the passage in Isaiah. It, just the single verse there uh, in Isaiah chapter 65, which speaks to that very topic. Isaiah 65, 24, 
We quote it very often. It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. What this teaches us about prayer is that we don't have to talk loud or long or repetitive for God to hear. God hears our prayer. God knows our prayer before we pray it. And often the answer to our prayer is on the way before we even pray it. Because the act of prayer itself is not some kind of an appeasement to a, to a God who's reluctant to do these things. The act of prayer is, is, is not a lever by which we prod God to do certain things. Uh, prayer is our drawing ourselves into alignment with the will of God. Our being willing to express our submission to Him and our desire for His will to be accomplished. And that's what this servant is after. This servant is after God's choice for Isaac. That's what I'm here for, Lord. Your choice for Isaac. I simply need wisdom. And of course, in James, we've so often read that if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. And God will grant that wisdom, wisdom and He won't uh, chastise us for asking. He won't say, what's the matter with you, dummy? Just do what you, you know you ought to do. You know? we, we, have, we need to remind ourselves that the Scripture does not say that God helps those who help themselves. That is a human statement. It is not God's statement. Now, that doesn't mean that we go around whimpering all the time and, and like a jellyfish, not doing anything because we can't do it unless God does it. But it means that there is nothing of worth in this life that you and I can do unless God does it through us. And that, is, that needs to always be in our mind. We need to be reminded of that. It is God who works within us to will and to do of His good pleasure. What we do in our own flesh without His strength is absolutely zero in terms of eternal value. And so this servant seeks the mind of the Lord, and while he is yet praying, the answer is coming. In fact, before he even made the prayer, obviously Rebecca was on the way to the well. Rebecca is Abraham's grandniece. And the implication of this passage is that she came out of the city gate to the spring to draw water alone. That she wasn't in a crowd of ladies. That there wasn't 16 ladies coming out of the gate kind of talking and, and chittering and coming down to draw water together. That she came alone is the implication of the passage. And he turned his eyes from heaven and looked at the city gate, and voila, <laughs> there was this lady approaching. The answer to his prayer. Now, he didn't know that, of course, at first. He couldn't know that this is the answer to the prayer. In fact, of course, the wording here, we have to realize, is Moses' wording. Moses is the one who relates to us that she is the son of, I mean, that she is the daughter of Bethuel, who was Nahor's son, that she was a virgin. None of these things could the servant have known as he laid eyes upon this lady coming. Moses, of course, knew this because it had been revealed to him. And he puts it in the passage in this juncture before the actual encounter 
takes place. All he knew, though, was that she was beautiful and that she was the first prospect that he could put to the test. He had asked God to guide him by this particular plan, and now he's going to put her to the test. But he watches her first. He watches her come. He watches her go down the stairs to the water, dip out the water, come back up. And then it says he runs over to meet her. This is really a, a, a dramatic experience when you think about it. She comes totally unsuspecting that her world is going to be totally, completely changed momentarily. <laughs> you know, certainly as a young lady, she, she dreamed of marriage. And, in, you know, and, and what's interesting is that she w had approached whatever age she was here, and we assume she was probably you know, late teens, 20s, somewhere in there, without being married, and no one having made any arrangements for her to be married. Which means what? That God was long before answering this prayer, before it was even in anybody's heart. We're constantly reminded that God knows all things. And that God begins to accomplish His purpose before we ever even get to the place to realize that we need this to be accomplished. And so it was. God had preserved this young lady. She was a virgin. And this was very, very important, obviously, to the situation here. And uh, so the servant runs over to her, and it's a little presumptuous for him to do what he did. Run up to a total stranger. She's just gathered water from the well, obviously going to go home with it. Uh, and he asks her for a drink. Now, she could have said several things. She could have thought, who is this guy anyway? You know, most young, unmarried, attractive ladies, at least in our society and, and possibly in that society too, will uh, automatically have suspicions about any man who comes running up and requesting something of them. And uh, she could have said, you know, basically get lost, get it yourself, uh, you know, various things she could have said. But you'll notice in the passage that there seems to be no hesitation as she brings the water jar down from her shoulder and pours the drink, however she poured it. It doesn't say whether she had a cup, he had a cup, poured it into his hands, poured it into his mouth, or however she did this. You know, just... <laughs> here. <laughs> a lot of things she could have done at this particular juncture. What this tells us about her is, first of all, that she was a gracious person. But then it goes beyond that. It tells us that God had prepared this young lady's heart. God was working in her heart. God gave this man favor in her heart, although she had never laid eyes upon him before. And certainly it must have been a little bit startling to have this guy come running across to her wearing clothes that were not particularly familiar to her from that region. Obviously, he came from several hundred miles away. Uh, he was obviously of Bedouin uh, extraction. But she turns a favorable ear to him, and she pours him a drink. Now, the test was 
Not that he would say, now please would you also water my camels. <laughs> he, the test was that she would offer without him making such a request. And in the passage we see that she notices the camels and she says, oh, and by the way, uh, it looks like the rest of your company is thirsty and the camels too. I'll get some water for them also. Uh, to me, it's a, it's a wonder that the servant didn't keel over and roll down the steps into the pool uh, <laughs> as he heard her say that, you know. Uh, it's, it's, you know, we're reminded of, of the passage. Was that last week in church or where was it? I heard it that uh, sp spoken on where uh, Peter was released by the angels and came knocking at uh, the door and was that in church? Yeah, I think so. It kind of runs together after a while. And, and Rhoda doesn't open the door because she's amazed and nobody else inside believes. And here's the answer to the prayer standing at the door and they don't really believe, oh, it's his angel, whatever that is, his ghost. <laughs> this man could have been absolutely in amazement and was, of course, as we'll see, at the instantaneous answer to the prayer that he had prayed just momentarily before. What is interesting is that one commentator said he thought she probably watered the camels because she was an animal lover. And she saw the poor thirsty camels and thought, oh, poor thirsty camels, I better give them some water. Well, I suppose that's possible. Commentators say a lot of funny things <laughs> when you read about uh, passages like this. And, and you know, obviously, uh, they get their uh, ideas, probably something from their own background and, and their own uh, biases one way or, or the other. Whatever was her reason, whatever went through her mind, whether she thought, oh, poor camels, or whether she thought, oh, this man needs some help, or what, we don't know what she thought. But there is no doubt about the fact that God put it in her heart to make this offer. Because she was committing herself to a task here. We're not talking about just, oh, well, I got a little leftover water, dump it in the trough here, and the camels can lick up a little bit off the bottom. No, we're talking about a good deal of water. <laughs> Leroy, after class last time, came up and uh, said, did you ever calculate what this might mean that she's committed herself to? And I have to admit, I hadn't. <laughs> but uh, we don't know how thirsty the camels were, how long it had been since they'd last been watered, but camels don't exactly take a little sip like a cat, you know, slurp, slurp, slurp. They scoop the stuff up by the gallons. And what is it, seven to eight pounds a gallon? Eight pounds a gallon uh, for water. And uh, I don't know how big her, her uh, pitcher was, her jar. Five gallons, uh, five times eight, that'd be 40 gallons, uh, pounds plus the weight of the jar. And uh, run up and down the stairs to the spring, dipping it out, coming up, pouring it, dipping out and pouring it, running up and down the stairs. Uh, she committed herself to minimally several hundred pounds of work here carrying this water up and down the stairs. Why did she do it? Was it because she needed the exercise? You know, was she going to Jenny Craig and wanted to be able to get a little... <clears throat> I doubt it. God put it in her heart to do this thing. 
Now, we have to remember there was one cultural factor here, but whether that really entered her mind or not, I don't know. The cultural factor was that it was women's work to dip water and to, to go to the well and, and to bring water. It's, it's not men's work to do this, whatever, you know, men's work. In our society, uh, that's becoming a little bit... Uh, <laughs> you're, you're chauvinistic if you talk about men's work and women's work uh, in our, uh, today, it seems. But uh, in, in that particular society, there were definitely things that men did, definitely things that women did, and drawing water was one of the things that women did. Now, whether she thought, well, these, these guys, poor helpless men, they need this help, uh, whether the men stood there and said, well, this isn't very chivalrous, uh, chivalrous for us to stand here and let her carry all the weight, we, we have no idea what their thoughts were. They probably didn't think a thing about it. It was what women do. But the servant thought a lot about it. Not necessarily so much about how much weight she might have been carrying up and down those stairs, but about the fact that she was doing what he had asked God to reveal to him as the task that would isolate the correct lady here. And so she is running up and down the stairs, probably dozens of trips. I don't know how much water she had to draw to, to, to give water to the other men plus the camels. But what does this display about her? Well, for one thing, it tells us that she was a strong lady, <laughs> uh, that she was energetic. Maybe this is all part of youth. I don't know. But it shows us also that she was a cheerful person and she had a servant's heart. This is a key to being useful to God, a servant's heart. If we don't have a servant's heart, there isn't a thing we can do for the kingdom of God. Not a thing. God doesn't need a lot of people who are chiefs and know they are chiefs and don't know how to lead. It's been said many times historically that the best generals are the generals who lead their men, who don't sit in camp and command their men to go take that hill, but are leading their men to take that hill. And uh, we don't hear about it near as much in modern warfare, but in warfare from, oh, 18th century on back at least, Napoleonic days on back, it was very common in a major battle for many generals to be killed. I mean talking about sometimes dozens of generals to be killed because they were on the battlefield, on the front lines, leading their men. And they got killed in probably greater proportion than their men did because obviously they were leaders and therefore they were sharpshooters to pick off the leaders. In the battles that were fought between the great ships at sea in the days of the wooden sails, there were sharpshooters in the rigging hanging up there with their rifles, and their job was to knock the officers off on the opposite ship. And that's what happened to Horatio Nelson in, in his crowning victory in the great Battle of Trafalgar in 1805 as the British uh, fleet in, encountered the Franco-Spanish fleet. And uh, the British were outnumbered, but he took it to them. And in the very first uh, encounter, he took a, a, a mini ball, a musket ball, right through the spine, severed his spine clean in half. 
And uh, he only lived three hours after that, but he lived long enough to hear that the battle was his, that the victory belonged to England. Numerous officers have been killed historically. Leadership involves, in the Christian faith, servanthood also. And she dis displays true servanthood here. Uh, she wasn't one of those who said, huh, I'm a young lady. I, I, I'm a gentle lady. Uh, I've kind of, you know, stepped below my dignity to come out and get the water in the first place. I should have had a servant do it. But, uh, no, she does all of this because character, this character has been built into this young lady. She has been prepared by God for the task which is before her. Without even knowing it, she was obeying the admonition in Hebrews 13 where it says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. I'm not saying that this guy was an angel. <laughs> he definitely wasn't. But uh, this, this displays the proper attitude on her part. Verse 21 Meanwhile, the man was gazing at her in silence to know whether the Lord had made his journey successful or not. Then it came about when the camels had finished drinking that the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her wrists weighing ten shekels in gold and said, Whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room for us to lodge in your father's house? And she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. Again she said to him, We have plenty of both straw and feed and room to lodge in. Then the man bowed low and worshipped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth towards my master as for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. This guy is almost dumbfounded by what is happening here. In silent awe, he watches this lady go up and down the stairs, pouring water in the trough, up and down the stairs, pouring water in the trough. And it says he stood in silence watching her, wondering, She's doing this. She's carrying out this, which is part of my prayer. Is this God's answer? I think chills were running up and down this guy's spine. It's probably 110 degrees, you know, but this guy, I think, was goosebumps, <laughs> you know. Have you ever had God answer a prayer in such a way that it just sent chills up and down your spine? Probably all of us have at some time or another. He witnessed the grace, the beauty, the humility of this young lady. And I think he marveled at the kindness and the mercy of God in answering his prayer in a way that he could not even have hoped for. You know, he was going for a woman that he had no idea what this lady would be like except for the fact she was to be of Abraham's brother's household. That was the only thing. 
She, of course, as I mentioned before, would have to have been a virgin. But other than that, everything else was totally up in the air as to what she would be like. What kind of a person would she be? And as he witnessed this, he thought, this is the finest woman that I could have possibly hoped for, dreamed for. I think all of us are occasionally, hopefully, frequently reminded of Paul's words in Philippians where he says in Philippians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do what? Exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or even think according to the power that works within us to him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all, not only that we ask, or that we could even think. Why? Because He is almighty. There is nothing that God cannot do except, of course, violate His own principles and uh, laws. And God does this on behalf of His people. Unworthy as we may be, God hears and answers our prayer and does wondrous things. Sometimes, of course, we wonder when he's going to answer some prayers, right? I think every one of us has a prayer, maybe many prayers that we have prayed that seems like nothing is happening as a result. But we've got to balance it with these passages which show us the, the truly miraculous way in which God works. And thus it is our responsibility simply to pray and to believe and leave the rest of it to God. The servant knew that if this woman is the answer to my prayer, Abraham and Isaac are going to be delighted. They're going to be pleased beyond comprehension. And I'm going to have the great honor of having done a job exceedingly well. Can you imagine, as he thought about the possibility of this being the lady he brings back and presents to Isaac and Abraham, and as they discover what kind of a person she was, they're going to think very well of the servant. Of course, even as he offers praise here, they're going to, of course, give top honor to God in it all. When she had completed the task, the servant was so excited and grateful that he gave her a reward that we would today consider to be excessive. The nose ring which he gave to her and the bracelets would be worth well over $2,000 today in terms of just the gold not counting the artwork that may have been involved in some way in the actual jewelry itself. I think most of us would trot up and down the stairs quite a few times carrying water if we thought somebody was going to hand us a check for 2000 bucks <laughs> at the end of uh, we'll water a lot of camels for $2,000. Of course, that was not in her mind at all. She had no thought of a reward. I think she was bowled over at what seemed to be an excessive reward here. But we must remember, to Bedouins, that doesn't seem like an excessive thing. If you've ever 
read much about Bedouin hospitality, they will basically almost give away the store, so to speak, to those who are in need, to, to travelers, to total strangers. At least they'll offer it. <laughs> now we might, it's kind of interesting here that uh, in, in this particular passage, if you happen to have the King James Version, they will call this ring a, an earring. But the Hebrew word here is nezem, and uh, it means nose ring. And uh, we, we see this later uh, down in verse 47, where it says, Then he asked her and said, Whose daughter are you? And she said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom milk aborted him. And he, I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her wrists. Now, every once in a while, we see somebody today with a nose ring, don't we? <laughs> and we think, that doesn't look very, uh, you know, like it would feel very good. <laughs> but it was very common, very common, uh, and, and is still common in that part of the world today for uh, rings to be worn, ears and nose and so forth. Uh, and, and that's considered beautiful. <laughs> As you well know, in some parts of the world, they even put pig's tusks through the septum in here not ladies don't usually, but uh, a lot of things have been done for, quote, beauty. She was, this, this was nothing unusual. This is very, very common in that uh, particular society. He presses the issue now. The servant uh, asks Rebecca her name. Now notice, he says, Whose daughter are you, and do you have lodging in your house? You'd think he'd say, now, whose daughter are you? Start getting some information before he says, oh, by the way, you wouldn't happen to have a little room. You know, all run one question. He just runs it all together here. Whose daughter are you, and do you have room in your house for us to stay? And he finds out that she is Abraham's grandniece. And I think, and on top of that, and you're welcome to stay at our house. I, I really think that he was almost totally overwhelmed by this. I think that is illustrated by, by what he does. Within probably less than one half hour from the time he first thought to, to give the prayer, he has seen a dramatic answer to the prayer an overwhelming answer to the prayer. And, it, and he fell on his knees right there in front of everybody, and he offered thanksgiving and worship to God. Where did the answer come from? Was this just a fortuitous experience? Huh. Was this just, uh, you know, an accident, a random encounter? Obviously, he knew that it was God's engineering, the whole thing. It reminds me, we were just, my wife and I were just listening to the radio before we came this morning, and Erwin um, Lutzer comes on, some of you probably hear him, uh, comes on from Moody Bible Church at, uh, is it 8 o'clock? At 8 o'clock. And uh, he was talking about how God had to lead Peter to throw the line in at the right place, lead the fish, to bite a shekel someplace and then to go bite Peter's line and to be pulled up with a shekel in his mouth to pay the tax. I mean, God had to lead all of those circumstances to come about. It couldn't be any old fish. 
And, and the right fish had to bite the right line to come up with a shekel in his mouth. And, and how God works in marvelous and miraculous ways to bring about his perfect purpose. I really feel sorry for people who don't believe that God is active in the world today. And there are so many churches in America today who don't teach the eminence of God. God, you know, sort of a modern deism. God's up there, he started the whole thing, but he's busy doing something else and we just have to kind of hang in there and do our best, you know. And not to believe that you and I can pray today that God will meet a certain need, do a certain thing, and believe that he will do it. That God cares enough about you and about me to answer our prayer. Even in something as specific as this. And so the servant falls on his knees before God and prays. I think before the whole month he was in transit, coming to Padanarim. This was heavy on his mind. I have a job to do. I have a serious job to do. I have to find the lifelong mate for my master's son. I have to find the, the, the woman who will be the wife of the one who will inherit all that Abraham has and the promise that God has made to Abraham, the one who will be the mother of those who would ultimately fulfill God's proclamation that they would be as numerous as the stars of the heaven and the sand of the sea. That was quite a task, a heavy responsibility. And I think as he rode his camel day after day on that month or so long journey that he was praying all along, O oh God of my master Abraham, lead me on the way. And so God did. And uh, within half an hour, he learned the truth that you and I learn from reading Scripture that is found in many places, but specifically in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. Again, a tremendous key to prayer. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. What is the key to prayer? Humbleness, humility, we can't come before God demanding. We can't come to God and say, look, God, I'm a pretty important person down here and you need me, so you do this and you do that. No. We come to God in abject humility, knowing that we are his servants simply to be the vessel which he uses to accomplish his purpose. Oh, God, lead me in the task that you have set me about to do. And then as we pray that prayer, throw the anxiety of it all onto the Lord because he cares for you and for me. He cared for this servant. He cared for Abraham. He cared for Isaac. He cared for Rebecca. He cared for everybody involved here. So God will bring it to pass. He was learning this truth in a profound and dramatic way. Not only are these words of Peter applicable here, 
but also the well-knowns of Solomon, <laughs> words of Solomon that we have probably even memorized. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, right? Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. The truth that rings through Old Testament and New, that God walks hand in hand with us. As we, in humility, submit to His direction and acknowledge our need. Acknowledge Him. Acknowledge Him. God is not acknowledged much in our society today. We even want to take His name off of, of, of public, anything having to do with the public, because we live in a pluralistic society. So we dare not, of course, push anybody's faith above another person's faith which is kind of ridiculous because uh, most places nobody will get in trouble for talking about Allah or Buddha or somebody else, but you talk about Jesus Christ and suddenly, you know, quote, all hell breaks loose, you know. Why is that? Because he is the truth. And, and Buddha and Muhammad and all the rest of them are as much a part of the lie as everything else. So why should anybody get upset? Satan doesn't get upset. He's just perfectly glad to have you talk about Buddha and Muhammad all you like. You start talking about Jesus Christ, especially in a way that's scriptural, and then he gets real upset. And so do his followers. And his followers surface very quickly because of their vehement response to Jesus Christ. Once you and I are actually on the path, which we gain, of course, by committing ourselves to Him in faith. The Lord keeps us on it. Now, sometimes we choose to deviate here, take a rabbit trail over there, and, and we kind of swing back and forth across the path, but God keeps us going in the general direction. And if the more we acknowledge Him, the more we trust in Him, the closer we stay to that path and walk faithfully in His ways. Do we lean on our own wisdom? Do we lean on our own abilities? Do we depend on our own talents? Do we think that God has given to us the wisdom and ability to do everything the way it ought to be done without acknowledging Him moment by moment and praying and seeking His wisdom in all that we do? I think we have a tendency because of the society in which we live, which is very individualistically oriented, we have a tendency to, to lean on our own understanding too much and to not acknowledge Him in all our ways. And thus, sometimes we get off the path. But we have to remember God is the one who is ultimately faithful and He will keep us along the way. Now, is this not a further test for Rebecca when he says to her, and could you put us up? Now, we're not talking about putting up a single man. We're probably talking about putting up a dozen men and at least 10 camels, maybe 20 camels. Now, how many of us would say, sure, come right on over? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, we probably wouldn't be too prepared to accommodate 10 or 20 camels. <laughs> of course, some of us have swimming pools. I guess we could keep them watered. <clears throat> but 
Anyway, most of us have trouble with just a dozen men, let alone the camels. But God had put trust and compassion in this lady's heart. And she offers to put them all up. Sure, come on over. We got plenty of room. Now what this tells us is that Rebecca doesn't come from some family living on Skid Row. Obviously, she comes from a family of some means because they must possess a place large enough to put up these people plus all the animals that we're talking about here. As we have noted, the servants' actions here are very appropriate. Let me read verse 26 again. Then the man bowed low and worshipped the Lord. And what does he say? Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and truth towards my master. As for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. It's important that we don't take God for granted. There's a way by which we must live by faith, trusting God moment by moment, believing that He will hear and answer our prayer, but not taking it so for granted that we don't acknowledge it when He does. God wants to hear thanks from our lips, from our hearts, and He wants to hear praise. It's not that he needs that. God doesn't need strokes to feel good about being God. We need it. You and I need to give thanks to God for our benefit, for our mindset, for the attitude of our heart. Because as we give praise and thanks, it changes our whole demeanor. Instead of being a grousy, grumpy person, like Eeyore again, <laughs> well, thanks for noticing me, you know. I knew it would happen. It always happens to me, you know. <laughs> we, we develop an attitude of thankfulness. We sing the song, In Everything Give Thanks, which, of course, comes straight from Scripture. In Everything Give Thanks. Now, it doesn't say for everything give thanks, but it says in everything give thanks, you know. Uh, we may not be thankful for a collision which has just destroyed our automobile, but we can be thankful in that that God has preserved us or whatever God has done in that particular situation because it changes who we are. It makes life meaningful and it can make life joyful in the midst of really difficult circumstances. Let me just read a few verses from Psalm 136 which illustrate this, this attitude of heart. One of the great praise psalms, thank, psalms of thanksgiving, just read a few of the verses here. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the God of gods, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for His loving kindness is everlasting. To Him who alone does great wonders, for His loving kindness is everlasting. To Him who made 
the heavens with skill, to him who spread out the earth above the waters, to him who made the great lights, the sun to rule by day, and the moon and stars to rule by night. Why? For his loving kindness is everlasting. Do we often go out and sit on a hillside and say, thank you, God, for the sun that shines, for the birds that sing, for the flowers that grow, for the blue sky? Do we do this? Probably not too often. We're too preoccupied with all that's going on in our lives, and we just take it all for granted. Oh, I suppose every once in a while, after it's been dark and gray for a week and raining on us, when the sun finally breaks through, we have a little bit of uh, thankfulness in our hearts. But uh, you see, the view here of God is we're thankful for God, not simply because I feel good today or because he answered this particular prayer, but because of who he is. He's the Lord of lords, the God of gods, the creator of it all, the one who loves us who is intimately in relationship to us, who remembers us in our lowest state, has rescued us from our adversaries, who gives food to all flesh, gives thanks, give thanks to the God of heaven for his loving kindness is everlasting. Loving kindness is a main theme in the Old Testament. <clears throat> from the book of Genesis all the way through, the loving kindness of God is constantly being reiterated. That's why I just, I just don't comprehend those who, pre, uh, who, who uh, draw a picture of the God of the Old Testament as a, as a wrathful, vindictive, uh, 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 selfish God who goes around zapping people because they don't bow down to him or something else. They just don't see that page after page, the loving kindness, the tenderness, the mercy of God shines out of the old as it does the new. This is who God is. 1 Thessalonians 5. Probably many of us have uh, memorized even the latter part of this passage. But verse 16, very short verse. Rejoice occasionally. Pray when you feel like it. Give thanks if you get around to it. Rejoice always. That means today, yesterday, and tomorrow. It means at work, at play, in sickness and in health. <laughs> Pray without ceasing. Obviously, it doesn't mean to go get in a corner and get down on your knees in 24 hours a day, seven days a week, be, in, be praying there on your knees. But in the attitude of heart, we are instantly in communication with God. Like Brother Lawrence, right? Even doing the pots and pans, he was communing with his father. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So often we say, oh, but I wish I knew God's will. Well, sometimes God keeps part of his will back until we learn to do what he's already said. This is my will. As soon as you start doing that, I'll show you a little bit more of my will. <laughs> but we want to know the will part like, well, will I get a job next week? Uh, will I get a raise next month? Uh, Shall I move there, move here? This, these are the will things we want to know. And so often we neglect the ones that are so clearly spelled out in Scripture for us. This is the will of God, that we rejoice always, that we pray without ceasing. And in everything we give thanks. Do we do that first? As we do that, the rest of the will begins to become more and more evident to us. 
well, we don't have time to develop this further, but flip-flop the situation. Put yourself in Rebecca's sandals. What a half hour it's been for her. Probably a little tired, but she heard this man pray. And this man said, the God of my master, Abraham. I think when she heard the name Abraham, it just electrified her. This was her long-lost uncle whom she had never seen. I think he was a semi-legendary character to her. And this man has come from him? Her life was going to be radically transformed momentarily. And we see how much God has worked in her life because this guy says, I'm not going to dilly-dally around. It's taken me a month to get here. It's going to take me a month to get home. I'm not going to fool and fritter around here and, and just relax and have a good time. I want Rebecca and I want to go. And they said, well, it's a little precipitous, isn't it? Let's ask Rebecca. And she says, let's go. Obviously, the work of God in, in this young lady's heart. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an exciting story. We'll finish it in four weeks. Would it put a slightly different spine on the story if she heard his first prayer? Well, I'm sure it would have, yes. Because if she heard the prayer, then she would have known what the test was before she was put to it. Sort of like getting the answers on the test before you get it. <laughs> yeah, I, there's no implication that that's true because he says in here that the prayer that he prayed in his heart. It, do, it implies that the prayer was prayed internally by him and not externally, whereas the later prayers, he fell on his knees right there in her presence. The implication is that he spoke it out loud, and thus she heard the prayer. But the first prayer... It came about before he had finished speaking. But in another verse... You can speak in your heart. Can you not? You'd still have to be willing. There's no doubt about that, yeah. Well, he ran to her, too. Okay. That's right, yeah. Uh, yeah, verse 45, uh, before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebecca came out. This is, he repeats the story a little bit later on. Knew it was there. <laughs> anyway, true, 